93.7 Express FM. Welcome to another coronavirus special podcast. On the show this week, we spoke to Councillor Steve Pitts from Portsmouth City Council to get their take on the status of COVID-19 in and around Pompey. We also chatted social media with the help of senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth, Dr. Alice Good. We also chatted to Henry Deacon, our local sport expert, to get his take on sport in and around Pompey and when we could see it resume. And a little bit later on, also, you're going to hear from some of those people that are adapting to conditions in lockdown and trying to make the best of it. So we will speak to some people that are prime examples of making the best out of a bad situation a little bit later on. Of course, as always, you can get in touch with me and let me know anything that you would like to see discussed on the show. You can email me, robbie at expressfm.com. That is robbie at expressfm.com. Right, first up on the show then, we spoke to, from Portsmouth City Council, Councillor Steve Pitt. Steve, hello to you. Hello, how are you doing, Robbie? Yes, very well, thank you. All good with you, all safe and well? Yes, working from home, getting used to it again. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is the new normal, as everyone's calling it at the moment. Um, listen, Steve, I, there's a couple of things I want to bring up uh, this evening, and we'll start with uh, where we were this time last week. This time last week, of course, we found out that Portsmouth City Council had uh, written a letter to the government asking for uh, a, a further supply of PPE. What's, uh, what's the latest on that? Has there been a response? So we haven't actually had a response to the letter, um, but what I can tell you is uh, mainly through a huge amount of effort from uh, the team within Portsmouth City Council, um, working with our procurement officers, uh, we've managed to make sure that we've got a supply chain uh, to keep a, a store of PPE coming into the council so that we can support where needed locally, uh, obviously mainly for our own uh services that we deliver but also when people are in uh, desperately short supply we can help from that and we are using that's uh, the two drops that we did get from the government um, but the I think the overall picture on PPE is still very tight um, I can't speak for QA hospital because obviously the NHS is separate to all of this mm. uh, and the supply by the government separately but uh, I do think that it's it's we've probably got a couple of weeks supply so we're not under huge pressure compared to what you're hearing from other parts of the country and some of the stuff we see on the news but it's not a comfortable position and it is something we're having to stay very vigilant about so you're so so just to be clear your sort of supply chain at the moment that's different to the you're sort of using an independent one is that right so we've managed to put out feelers to a whole range of different suppliers uh, many of whom approached us some of whom came through uh, other councillors, a couple through Penny Morden, a couple from councillors Donna Jones, and some who've contacted myself and the leader. So a whole range of different um, offers that we receive. Plus, we've obviously been tracking down companies ourselves to get supplies. So all of the stuff that we need, all of the stuff that the government recommends through Public Health England as the correct PPE to use in different care settings, we currently have a supply uh, that is that means that no one uh, uh, amongst our uh, services is having to go without uh, and we're also regularly checking in every day with all of the 39 care homes in the city only a few of which are actually run directly by us the rest are independently run but nevertheless we're checking with them every day to make sure that they are okay uh, and if they or other organizations who desperately need PPE need something as a stopgap while the government sorts them out then we are filling that that gap 
and we'll, we'll come on to the to the sort of the testing side of things in care homes and whatnot in a second. But in terms of the when you've been communicating with you know people in care homes at the moment, that of, of course we you know have got a lot of coverage in the last week or so, but before up until then haven't got nearly as much coverage as you know uh, places like the NHS. How how are they? How do they seem from a sort of a, a sort of mentally? How's everyone seeming to cope at the moment? I think it's fair to say that everyone's under a huge amount of pressure. Um, I think uh, what I always say is when asked about this is that imagine what it's like for those frontline medical staff in hospitals losing uh, patients and how stressful that is for them and how frustrating dealing with this unpredictable disease. But they don't have personal relationships with those patients because, you know, they've they've arrived already sick and they're, they're treating them as a patient in hospital. But for people in care home settings, some of the residents that they're um, losing to this virus have been residents for a considerable period of time. And they have personal relationships with them. You know, maybe they read to them. They certainly interact with them at different times of the day. There'll be little bits of conversation that they regularly exchange with them, the hellos and good nights and stuff. And for all that to, to disappear in such awful circumstances must be incredibly stressful. So I think the fact that they are coping uh, albeit under that that level of pressure, is truly remarkable. And I think this country, and certainly this city, owes them all a huge debt of gratitude. Well, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Do, do, do we, are we, are we likely to... I mean, you just saying it there made me think, oh, I want, I want to help, you know, I want to be able to help these people. But are they going to get support when, when all this is over? And I mean, ideally, we want it now as well. But like you said, it is going to be tough on them. Is there going to be... Are we likely to see support in the future for them, things like counselling, stuff like that? Well, certainly in the in the council-run care homes, we've got support in there now. So there's a key point of contact around welfare in each of our homes, as well being uh, advice and newsletters going out there, pointing to people where they can get help if they wish to do it on their own or a number that they can call if they wish to ask us to help them directly. So we're, we're making sure that happens now because we recognise how important it is. But also we need to make sure that um, we're working with the voluntary community sector uh, to see if they can supply similar levels of support for those staff in those private care homes because they're definitely going to need it. And we're not talking about, you know, somebody having an hour's chat and then everything's going to be fine. I think we're talking at a sort of PTSD levels here with some of, some of these people who are being exposed to really traumatic circumstances, losing multiple residents in a home. One of our own council group is a... Uh, a manager in a care home and, and I know how stressful it's been for, hi, for him in this situation and we're hearing that ac- across the city so um, you know it, nobody ever wants to lose anyone before the moment when they expected to you know you accept people passing away from old age or from uh, the sort of run-of-the-mill diseases here all the time but I think it's the magnitude of this is just so stressful. Well, that's been, uh, I think that's one of the, the, the terrifying factors, isn't it? And in terms of the, the care homes that you, that, that you guys run in, in Portsmouth, um, the, the visitors and, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk with the government about allowing visitors to these care homes to people, you know, to say their final goodbyes. Is that something that goes on in them? So, it's, uh, um, yes, the, um, it, it all depends on the in my specific circumstances, because it's the level of uh, if there's an outbreak, and just for clarity, an outbreak is when there's two concurrent cases that have been tested as positive in a home. So there are, you know, there's a lot of limitations on comings and goings in those settings. But uh, my understanding is that wherever possible, people are being given the chance to say goodbye, albeit that, 
you know, with having to put on PPE and limit the, limit the number of contacts and the number of visits that are possible. And of course, we want to look after uh, our, our care staff from a mental point of view and also, of course, from a physical point of view. And, and last week, we, we heard that Portsmouth City Council wanted to try and uh, try and develop a form of sort of a more mobile testing facility, um, it, it, you know, for those in care homes and for, for everyone in general. How's that come along in the last week? Is there any developments there? Well, the, the whole testing situation is, is quite fragmented nationally mm. and a bit of a minefield to try and understand. But we understand that there are now uh, testing kits being distributed to care homes on request, um, that there will be uh, the opportunity for people to do some, uh, some personal testing as well. There's obviously the um, testing centre that the government has set up through the Department of Health and Social Care on what's called the W4 site off the M275. Um, we, for our own staff uh, and, our, and our network, have got uh, 15 slots a day for testing up at uh, QA Hospital. Um, so, yes, it's beginning to happen, uh, but it's still not happening in a particularly joined-up way. And to an extent, you can you can understand that because of the scale of what's having to be put in place here. But nevertheless, it is frustrating that we're not yet seeing a completely clear picture as to how all this testing is going to un- unfold in a joined-up and rational way. And would you see the solution to that through more sort of would you want to take more responsibility for that as Portsmouth City Council or are you are you still wanting it to to be treated on the national level? Well, we're already taking responsibility for our own situation as much as we possibly can. But obviously, we're guided by the restrictions the government put on who can be tested and when. So uh, because the W4 site is now appointment only. Um, so we're still trying to get to grips of, uh, with exactly what the what the prioritisation for testing is, because uh, there's some clarity still needed around that. Um, and we'll be, you know, we'll be the masters of our own destiny as much as we can be. Um, but it's certainly going to be the case that um, the government is going to have to do more and be more directly involved, especially around getting those testing kits out, arranging their collection, etc. Um, we're, we're not, we're we're hearing. Uh, anecdotally of what's going on but it's, it's quite difficult for us because there's we what we don't specifically know is what's going on in those private homes other than what they tell us because there's no obligation on them to report into the council only to the department of health okay well just just before just one thing i want to uh, pick up on before before we let you go as well uh, another thing i saw was that uh it was a headline that portsmouth city council is looking at an 18 million pound loss um from from the situation i, I don't know i, I want to clarify with you whether or not that is that's correct and if so is it something that sort of people in portsmouth the residents should be worried about so um I'll very quickly summarise the picture because the £18 million is not correct, but I need to explain to you why. So sure. when the government announced the first £1.6 billion, Portsmouth City Council's share of that was approximately £6 million. It was just over, actually, but mm-hmm. roughly £6 million. When they announced the second tranche of money, the second £1.6 billion at the end of last week, they didn't uh, tell us at the time how that was going to be distributed amongst local authorities. So the £18 million figure was before we had any clarity about how that was going to be distributed. We do now know today that our share of that second £1.6 billion is £5.9 million, so slightly less than before, but more or less the same amount, which still leaves us with a current black hole of around £12 million on our forecasts. Um, But that's all predicated on the... (coughs) 
Office of Budget Responsibility and how they thought that the uh, the end of lockdown might be phased, etc. And if there's any movement in that and the government was to extend lockdown further or we were to see any kind of a uh, a second wave of cases because lockdown happened too quickly and cases surged above that crucial one-to-one ratio figure that we keep hearing about, um, then that figure will just go up. So there, there is a huge amount of pressure on the council's finances. And obviously, for us, lost income, uh, reduced council tax receipts, reduced business rates, loss of parking, uh, loss of planning fees, lack of rental income, all these things add up to a lot of money. And all of that money goes to pay for frontline services. Well, we certainly want to. We, we we certainly hope that it's something that will be, um, well, that will improve and will look a little bit more positive in the in the coming days and and weeks and months. Listen, uh, Steve, thank you so much for your for your time this evening. We really do appreciate it. And uh, take care of yourself. And you too, Robbie. All the best to everyone. Ninety three point seven Express FM. Right now, we're going to talk all about social media, and to talk about that, we have uh, on the phone a senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth School of Computing, Dr. Alice Good. Uh, Alice, good evening. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time this evening, Alice. Um, this feels like a a time for for social media to be either hero or villain. I think hero. Yeah? Why? Yeah. Well, this this word comes up a lot, doesn't it? These unprecedented times. But we've really seen social networking sites becoming a lifeline for so many people. Um, Isolation is a massive issue for a lot of people. Um, We've seen a huge sense of community growing. There's been a lot of um, the COVID-19 support groups set up around the UK and people helping each other. Um, it's, it's become a, a portal for support, um, it, not, not, not least with supporting people, but also with sort of helping with um, education and um, entertaining children and, and lots of other things. And I suppose there's the, the argument that it's an escape, isn't it? And it's, a, it's a sort of, it, you know, it's an extra bit of the world that we get to sort of go into a new, a, a, an entirely new connected sort of area that a lot of people get to explore. Yeah, that's right. Yes, and of course, I mean, there are there are there can be issues too. I mean, there's a lot of uh, fake news on, on Facebook, and a lot of people um, not knowing whether to believe it or not. And there's a lot of perpetuating of fear. Um, so people do need to be mindful, of course, of what they are looking at and what they are reading, and to sort of check sources. Um, there's a lot of sort of Chinese whispers and word of mouth and so forth. Um, so, but uh, it's you know remembering, of course, that social media is a tool. Um, yes, there can be negatives, but there, I think, you know, particularly during these times, the positives far outweigh the negatives. Do you think that the, 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 the positives, though, are, are focusing on a, a slightly less, uh, what's the best way to put it, a slightly less emotional way that maybe the cons are? Because the reason I said that it could be, it could be a, a hero or a villain in these times is because it's a time where there's more pressure, isn't there, on social media, and there's and there's more people spending more time on it, and that creates its own potential hiccups. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, people do, of course, need to be mindful not only of what they're sort of reading and what they're looking at and being able to critically evaluate that, but uh, also be mindful of how much time they are spending on um, social media. And there's a lot of talk about. Uh, the concern around too much screen time, um, and that's been discussed lately as well. But remembering that these, the screens and the, the social media is is 
really be, it is becoming it is a lifeline for people right now. Um, the, the fact that they're able to communicate with family members, the fact that they're able to communicate with friends, um, check in on people, and sort of recreating those communities that we've sort of slowly seen dissipating in the world in the last sort of like 50 years. Mm. And it's, you know, we, we've really seen that uh, with these communities. And one thing I, I really hope after after COVID-19 is that the, you know, the communities stay. And I see it in my my own village and people are getting to know each other they might not have bumped into each other in person but they are getting to know each other and they're keen to support each other and that the social media facilitated that so do you see a do you see a a, in the future then do you see a change in the way that it that it is used and do you think that some of these things that people will have learned through it uh, for example like we're we're learning so often aren't we about all these all these meetings that we can do you know on social media and whatnot and and facebook lives instagram lives with concerts a lot of people are Mm going to say well why don't we just stick to that from now on yeah, and certainly um, here in my own workplace, um, you know, why do we need to go into the office? Why do we need to have these face-to-face meetings? Why do we need to have um, uh, conferences face-to-face? We, we can do it online. Um, but in, having said that, face-to-face contact is important as well. Um, I think it's sort of recognising that perhaps we can, we, we don't have to lead such busy lives rushing around getting to meetings and doing things face-to-face when we can actually do them virtually, but sort of still striking that balance because, you know, a human interaction is, is, is of course, important, um, and also recognising, of course, that we have um, a, a, a section of the population that aren't as likely to be online as, as the rest of us, and these are the older people, and particularly, you know, at risk at the moment of isolation because, of course, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are having to shield because of their being over, over seven, age 70 or because they've got illnesses as well. Um, and they don't have the use of technology and, and they're not too likely to use Facebook. So that, that is a, a big concern there, of course. Yeah, and, and I, funny you touch it. I want to come on to sort of the the responsibilities of of uh, those that run social media in a second. And, and but but first of all, that that responsibility of them trying to make it more accessible and easier for whether or not that be for the younger people that are just starting up in social media and you know the people that are trying to maybe maybe learn through it or homeschool through it all the older people is do you think that we're going to see a change in in how accessible it's made although of course i know we can get it on any tap tablet or whatever but did the, the way in which that facebook twitter instagram they run do you think that'll be a bit more accessible a bit easier i would like to see it being made a little bit more accessible to older people um, in terms of its design. I mean, you see the different types of platforms that are suitable for different age demographics. Um, I don't use Instagram myself, but I know, you know, there's TikTok, I think mm. it's TikTok, is it? Um, that are used <laughs> by the younger younger generation. Um, and different types of demographics tend to use different types of platforms, and but you don't tend to see people over the age of sort of 70, with some, but not mm. generally, using Facebook. Um, and it's maybe sort of finding a platform that they're that it's going to be more appealing to them and it's going to be user friendly and of course taking into consideration that uh, the older generation are, are almost certainly going to have age related impairments that are going to affect the way that they interact with interfaces so these interfaces need to be user friendly from a visual perspective and, and sort of from a motor perspective as well um, and from the learnability uh, and, and these sort of things and, and, and I think too that we I would like to see in the future uh, making use of 
social media through the TV, making it accessible through the TV because the TV is the medium that the older generation have grown up with and are quite comfortable with and a lot of them will use the TV for, for shopping. Um, so you know, I think it will be a natural sort of progression to move on to using social media through the TV. And do you think that will... will it, is there anything that you've seen that's up and coming that will, uh, like sort of new platforms or do you think it will revolve around the same platforms but them just changing and innovating? I haven't seen anything new yet, but I'd like to see... I think this is time when people are going to come up with ideas because COVID-19 isn't going to suddenly go away. Um, and you know, there's a big call now for research for helping to sort of reduce isolation in older people. Um, there's a lot of adverts on this, the Facebook portal um, technology, but uh, you know that still uses the Facebook, Facebook platform. I think we need to, to be looking at what do older people want? What, what are they more like to use? How can they socially interact with each other? And, and talk to the older people themselves and, and use the technology that we've got. We don't want to be expecting them to go out and buy iPads if they don't already have them. It's an, it's an expensive asset for a lot of people and not necessarily affordable. But to use the technology we do have, which is the TV, and we're seeing sort of things like YouTube and other, other sort of applications available through smart TVs, um, there's no reason why not we, we could develop a platform, a social media platform that would be more suitable for older people to communicate with. And here's where I want to come on to the to what I said about the the way that social media is regulated now and the, and the pressure that is going to be on social media. Because do you think at, at a time now where more people than ever are going to be spending more time than ever on social media and more of their more of their life is going to be on social media than than it elsewhere would be, you know, than doing their work or whatever they might be doing? Is this a time for for people to clamp down on things like, uh, for one example, Instagram, things like taking away likes that I know that they're you know the like count which shows up when you when you post a photo it says to yeah. everyone how many likes you get is this, a, is this a time because it could be so detrimental at the moment to people's mental health and there is that worry there and i've seen plenty of cases of it is this the time that we should be really putting pressure on people like instagram to play because they do have such a huge responsibility to play they do have a responsibility but then i think as individuals we also have a responsibility and it's i think um it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think for younger people, uh, then there perhaps there is more responsibility from these platforms. But for older people, I think we need to take responsibility ourselves. And um, it's easy to put the blame onto to platforms. But we, we, at the end of the day, these Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, they are tools, and we have to take responsibility ourselves as to whether or how we use them. And obviously, for younger people, under under parental guidance. But given, but given for a lot of people, there's there might not be a there might not be a choice genuinely because they maybe they need it for for some form of work or they they just need it as a way of engaging. For example, now when there's a global pandemic, you need, you know you need something like social media. Without it, we would be lost. So surely, yeah. you know, at a time where you you really want to be looking on Instagram, but you know that mm -hmm. it might have that little might sow that little seed at the back of your mind. Do you, do you think that they do? still have a responsibility because they're, they're ultimately they're, they're providing for a service aren't they they are fund a service and, and perhaps you know, that there is potential for some of these features that could be turned off which would be something quite simple to do so the, the user could sort of like have a bit more control over how the application works so you, you, know, you could turn off um, particular features that you might find um, affect your well-being for example mm. so that that could be something that could be looked at
And what? Just finally, what? Whilst we got, what would your advice be to to uh, for maybe parents that are trying to bring their children a little earlier into social media at the moment because they're trying to find something to entertain them? What advice would you give to people that are lowering their their children to be exposed to social media? I would say be very very you know wary of um, not wary sorry but to be very mindful of um, using parental controls on on sort of platforms any platforms that you're using. Um, and and to, you know still to to be monitoring your children, you know, what they're doing, what they're doing online. Because at the end of the day, it's your your child is your responsibility. Um, but I mean, keeping them safe online is is, is an important thing to be to parents to be considering. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Listen, Alice, thank you so so much for your, for your time this evening, and uh, please do stay safe. Take care of yourself. Thank you very much. Dr. Alice Good, a senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth School of Computing. Uh, I want to turn our attentions to sport and local sport in particular. So, of course, we've got Henry Deacon on the line. Henry, good evening. Uh, good evening, Robbie. How are you? Yes, I am. I'm, well, I'm, I'm well. We spoke a few weeks ago and I remember the, basically the gist of the conversation was we don't have a clue what's going on in terms of sport in, in and around the community. Now it feels like... We have a better idea of what will happen. We don't know any sort of we don't know many dates or anything like that, but we have a better idea of contingency plans and, and sort of exits of or how we resume sport. Yeah, I think you're probably right in, in saying that. Um obviously last time we spoke the rugby season finished and most of our uh non league clubs have finished. Now haven't in the last week have had have been told that their season will finish. The football, yeah. The football, yeah. yeah. And um and basically, a decision will now be put into the National League Club's 68 members as to how the season finishes. Haven't been set in the league. They're obviously asking for a conclusion and that the table either stands as a frozen league table or via points per game uh, ratio method, which it would, could uh, see them promoted into the National League after a year's absence. So for them, that's then uh, done. And then obviously, the, the big thing will be about when when football will resume because it's it's probably easier to rearrange Premier League matches but when you go down to non-league level it's, it's a little bit harder. Why why is that? Why is that hard? Because because you would have thought for a, you know for a Premier League match you think of the amount of people that it takes and the amount of resources that have to be used up and plans that have to be put in place. Why is it why is it more difficult for the for the lower leagues? Um again you, you still have the kind of less people organising the games but I suppose with the Premier League their contingency plan that they want to put in place and they're putting in with the government is to ensure testing, testing, testing everywhere they go which will obviously mean they'll get started quicker because they will have the test and they'll have the financial capabilities as well to buy the test where well, with non-league football there's less people it's more in a nice way, Joe Public, you know, it's everyone, me, you, you know, we're all involved in it, we're all in yeah. the same uh, boat, we won't get tested, probably, um, and it, it'd, be, it'd, be a massive, it'd be a massive risk. So, uh, when football we start below the Premier League, I don't think anyone knows, I don't think anyone knows whether Pompey will even finish their season. I know there's talks about them returning to training on maybe 18th and possibly restarting the season in June, but, uh, whether that will happen or not, I think again will depend on what what comes out of the government over the, over the next the next few weeks or so. So I think football wise, there's uh, there's more clarity as to how things are happening. But as to what happens next and and when a next ball could be kicked, as you could expect, is all up in the air. And in terms of the uh, the, the sort of the communication that goes on uh, through 
through the clubs, through the players, through the supporters and, and, and the people that make these decisions. How much are they taking into... Uh, I, I know, of course, everyone's going off government advice at the moment, but how much also are they, are they sort of... How, how much are they planning just for next year and to go sort of look at things and go, right, that's where we want to reset as to, you know, we want to make the best of this, the rest of this season as such, if that makes sense? Um, I think as far as clubs are concerned, there obviously there's a lack of clarity at the moment and I think it's very hard to, to, to plan for next season. Say in Hazard's case, they, there's almost a scenario where they plan for if they... Firstly, it promotes international league three points per game, or secondly, invited into the national league because clubs could go under. There's a there's a two league phase plan there. There's also other clubs that below Havens League have been completely voided that are planning legal action to try and get into another league. So I think for clubs, it's kind of unnerving what's happening at the moment. And as far as dialogues to the authority by the authorities downwards, and I don't I don't like to be critical on here, but it's been more or less non-existent. Um, the FA, when they uh, the FA decisions with step three to seven, there was uh, no communication with the clubs. In fact, step three and four, two of the three alliance leagues wanted points per game, but because of the decision of null and void the Wessex League, the decisions then just to be made to scrap step three and four. Um, as far as the national leagues concerned, they they asked member clubs to end the season. Um, but there was no nothing on the table as to what the consequences that would be, whether that be a, an immediate voiding of the season or what route to be taken, whether there be another vote. Uh, obviously, now it's passed. It's now down to, I think, we believe there's three options on the table. That's null and voiding the season, um, freezing the league standings, or deciding the league season on, on points per game. And it'll be interesting to see how that vote split goes, especially between two and three. And... It's weird, isn't it? Because I was thinking this a little bit earlier today. I was thinking, if you put your put your mind in the, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of a, of the of these these athletes that are, that are playing football, cricket, whatever it might be. But I want to, I want, we'll come on to cricket and the summer sports in a second. Playing the winter sport, it must be like you you're you could have a sort of a seven, eight, nine month gap between playing two games of football you've grown up your life playing football every single week maybe you've had a couple of weeks where you've been injured but other than that you've played consistently how how's how long do you think it'll take for football standards to actually resume the standard that they were at it's gonna it's surely gonna take some time for it to bed in yeah and, and i suppose the other thing to think about is what caliber of players will have in the leagues because there's not going to be as much money about Mm. Um, that that's for certain, and that's been made clear, especially at Haven. They said that the the budget that they have this season will not be the budget that they'll have next season, whenever that starts. And I think you have got a problem with football where you're going to probably have one or two clubs that go under. And I know it sounds horrible to say it, but there's clubs teetering on the brink in League Two, Conference, and below. Um, you know that, that struggling financially before this. And so you wonder what's going to happen to a lot of players, whether the standard's going to be the same, as you say. I think physically, as you say, it's such a gap that it will probably take a couple of months before you get anywhere near back to normal, probably, your, um, your standards. And I suppose sports scientists would be played double, triple time to try and establish how you, how you get yourself back to those standards. But as you say, if it is the worst-case scenario, and, and God forbid it, it isn't the fact that we, we don't play football again until say January next year it's going to be impossible for players yeah I'm, I'm wary I, w- I want to try and get as 
get trying equal the amounts of time that we put to current football and, and mm-hmm. the summer sports. So to just just very quickly, uh, we'll leave football on this. The financial implications for most of our clubs around our area, how much support are they getting, just quickly? Um, again, I'm not sure out, outside of football, but I know that... Um, that uh, football clubs have been given a grant from the from the Premier League, or some of the clubs have. Um, I don't know how much ports have got in that, but I know haven't were given thirteen thousand, uh, okay. which is advancement of the September payment. As far as uh, other sports are concerned, as far as cricket and that is concerned, I'm not quite sure on any uh, uh, dividend payment. But staying on cricket, uh, it was announced last week that the ECB has suspended all forms of cricket until July the first. At the earliest, they've suspended England's uh, test series uh, against the West Indies. As far as village cricket's concerned, that's going to really put it between a rock and a hard place because, yeah. obviously... The, that's not going to happen, cricket, is it? I, 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 can't, I can't see it happening because you kind of play it June, July, and you yeah. almost finish it in the first part of August when there's enough light to sustain a day. Um, the best case scenario is perhaps Maybe if, if things improved in in July, but of course it's it's we we just don't know whether they could play a short or t- you know tournament or something like that. But again, I, I I don't know how how conceivably you can you can do that. Same with you know, obviously the hundred looks set to be cancelled and mm. and other tournaments like that as far as Hampshire cricket's concerned because if you look at other countries, they're not allowing sporting events in, until September. And do you think that the sports like like cricket, sports that are gonna begin their season? Do you, there's been a few things sort of. There's all sorts of speculation thrown around. There's been from a professional side of things. There's been people saying, "Oh, well, why don't we get all all of the counties to go and stay at the Aegeus Bowl at the hotel that surrounds the ground, and they'll quarantine themselves for a month and play cricket there?" How about for our local clubs? They switch the summer season to a winter season, and the season becomes indoor cricket. Is that is, is that so? I suppose these are all things that are currently being discussed. Is it? I'm not sure, but I w- I'm not. The problem I'd have is that I'm not sure how many uh, people perhaps transform to that because a lot of people do have that um, cricket in the summer mentality, football, yeah. rugby in the winter mentality. So um, that, that would probably be the biggest problem that cricket would have because it is it is our summer sport. People, you know, uh, during the winter after cricket uh, digressed to a winter sport, and again, would would the would the numbers be the same for indoor cricket? Because there is a thing, isn't there, with village cricket, the fact that you you turn up on a sunny day, you you knock a few balls in, you know, the village green, you um, you, you know, you rise your girlfriends and, and you know boyfriends, or whatever, um, you know, they're, they're in the you know the pavilion having a few drinks and that, and then you go in afterwards and you have a few uh, a few drinks, that kind of. Thing about it that's why a lot of people take part in it would it be the same with indoor cricket um no i used I'm to play it sure. no <laughs> i'll answer that one for you i, I mean I, yeah, yeah absolutely I, it's not something that i mean i you know it is a completely different thing so i, so I suppose these are all all things that are open just very very quickly we've got about 10 20 seconds left who's going to lose biggest from the, from this in the sporting world in terms of fans workers players in in from the local sports scene um, I'd say clubs because they're gonna they're gonna lose a lot of money, which they're probably not gonna get back unless they get big ticket uh, receipts, especially non-league football clubs. And for me, the cricket clubs gonna be the one starved the hardest because, unfortunately, they won't like me saying it. They're gonna mm. have a whole summer of that cricket. It does. It does make me sad to hear that. But anyway, that's how it is at the moment. We we hope to get some sport as soon as possible. Henry, thanks for your time this evening, mate, and take care. My pleasure, Robbie. Thank you. Express FM. 
Passionately Portsmouth. It's the coronavirus special and we are going to talk to someone now who produced and was the lead singer on a track by the voices of the NHS Frontline. Uh, they did a cover of Bill Withers' Lean On Me and we chatted to Phil Swan earlier this week. Singing is something that we all do, even if we, if, if other people don't like us, it, uh, their opinions of our voice is, is their opinion. But when most people sing and they enjoy it themselves, so that's the most important thing. That it's something, and it's an escape for them. That's what the reaction I've got from a lot of the people that were involved. It, it took them out of the, it just took them out of the world for a bit whilst they were uh, concentrating on doing the track, which is it's a lovely thing where music can take you somewhere else, you know. And, and so is that the is that the sort of the, the the objective of the song? I know, of course, we'll come on to the, the the way that it's raising money in a second as well. But in terms of when you thought, you know, oh, let's let's do this song. Was it the initial thought was let's get all the NH, let's get NHS staff to sing a song, or was it uh, let's make sure we do some form of, of song? You know, lean on me. Uh, how did that work? Well, the initial the initial project came about from my cousin Carly, who actually worked uh, in the uh, queue at Queen Alexandra Hospital. And it, so when we're stuck in our rooms and we're stuck in isolation, we, it's, it's, it's almost hard to believe that it's actually going on. And yeah. you don't you don't see you don't have that connection with the, the trauma that's going on in the hospitals, which I I had a little insight with my cousin into you know, seeing the fear and and the, how upset she was with people dying and stuff and, and literally they're dying in the hospital and, and, and I got connected with that and I thought let's put a track together see if I can help them out raise some money um, to protect our NHS so initially I sung the, the lyrics and I thought so everyone sing, everybody was sending their vocals in I did want to get people to do the whole track thing but the, the problem was, was, was how we were doing the recordings was on the phones, etc., and some of the recordings wasn't too clever, and there was noises in the background. So in the end, I had to get them to do the backing vocals. But yeah, I, I didn't realise well, there was a few comments on that a lot of the nurses said it, it was an escape and it took them away from it. And it, to me, that that's enough. That's enough, even if it's you know that it's just such a, a, a moving thing to hear from them. And actually, that, I felt it, you know, it, made, and it sort of brought a tear to my eye, to be honest with you. And it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing that I could help people in, an, in um, a situation like this. Well, um, go on. Yeah, no, sorry. Carry on. I was just going to say, it's something we all need at the moment, isn't it? We need the sort of the, the gentle distractions. We don't want stuff, you know, there's so much stuff that can make us feel overwhelmed at the moment. We just want stuff that's sort of gently going to take our mind into maybe a different place. Yeah, it, take a, it, it does indeed, but it also doesn't, um, we don't escape from the fact that it's happening. So there's a bit yeah. of awareness going on there in the video and a bit of escapism indeed. So explain to us where, where everyone that's in the video has, for those that haven't seen the video, where has everyone come from? Well, the majority of the, 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 the staff and, or that are on the video are at Queen Alexandra Hospital, but we have had um, nursing homes from around the country that has been other hospitals and paramedics sending personal video to themselves. But they, 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 they're recording at home, they've recorded in the mornings after their, their shift, 12-hour shift at the hospital, they got a group together. And that was the very first video that I got from Queen Alexandra Hospital. When I received that, I, I couldn't believe that there was like 13, 14 people just on a 12-hour shift. And they put the effort in and they got together, they, got, they had all the lyrics and they, they sung this after their shift. And it was, you know, that was the most 
poignant thing for me. And, and, and then I thought, well, that's it. Let's go for this and, and get as much publicity as possible and get as many people to sing. But I, and, and and that's how we got. That's how it came about. And then um, your um, your good Liam Howes, who's uh, <laughs> one of your one of your guys, is my cousin, and, and I got him involved. To um, and he said, "Oh, I'll do the video for him," which is it's actually his cousin um, Carly, who who is my cousin. So that's how it came about that we got all the the footage. And she worked really hard, and she was getting people listed, and 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 then it just snowballed. And then there's a few people like I have a friend that I thought, well, let, let me bring in some of my musical friends that I have in the past, because I was with Mungo Jerry for 22 years, so I managed to get a few um, contacts. And I have my friend Barry Upton, who was in Brotherhood of Man, and he's done he's done numerous things. The name the name drops that are going on here, Phil, unbelievable. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I thought I had to I had to do it because it's like and and Barry himself, he said, Philip, just use my CV. Use my name as much as you possibly can to raise as much money and awareness as you can. So it's just brilliant. It was just brilliant. I had all this support from a lot of my friends so, all over the world. So that's that's uh, brings us on to it now. Then, so of course we now that we've got the track out, the 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 whole point is that we of course are raising awareness and and, and raising money, and that can that's it's such an easy thing to do nowadays, isn't it? Because we don't have to go into a store to buy something. All we need to do is just just stream it and download it. Indeed, it was, there's no such thing as a physical sales now. You don't need to have any CDs made, and it's, it makes life a lot easier. And it's a click of a button, and you can donate. So, and as I said, at the end of the video, um, there is a link to the Virgin Money for the COVID-19 fund, which is going directly to them. So, if you go to, to go to YouTube and just and just type in "voices from the NHS frontline" or "lean on me," or if you like you said, head to us on social, then you'll find the link there as well. And, you, and you'll find it. the link there. So, hopefully, what we'd like to do is when we when it, when it's a, when we're able to get out of this situation and it's a lot safer. So, I'm the technical manager of the Groundling Theatre in Portsmouth. Is to maybe get all these to get the people that have uh, participated in making the track and get them all together and we do maybe do a recording live recording and a big party for them at the theatre let's do that that should absolutely happen I agree I'll back that any day of the week <laughs> brilliant absolutely brilliant well Phil you, you, you've done something really really genuinely special and um, and I hope people do go and have a look at the, the music video because you, you'll do well to watch it and, it and it not bring a tear to your eye so we'll, we'll play the song now and um, Phil thank you for, for providing such a wonderful sort of nice distraction for, for us uh, on the outside and also for those that are doing the, doing the wonderful hard work that they're doing well, on the front the, line the, the, the heroes are the front line the NHS frontline workers they're heroes they're absolutely heroes so what I've done is just is, is just give them that, that opportunity to you know to, to express themselves and it's, it's a beautiful thing and thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for Express FM No you're more than welcome well thank you so much for, for putting it together and uh, take care of yourself Phil speak soon And you take care bye bye Fantastic. Voices of the NHS Frontline. That is a cover of Bill Withers' Lean On Me. Don't forget to search for that on YouTube and the, the link will be there to donate as well. Right, next up I want to chat to Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hello. I want to talk about what you've been up to because I absolutely love this and I think this is everything that the world is needing at the moment. Explain to us what you've been doing in the last uh, week or so. So I have been dressing up as an inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex 
and I've been walking around the streets of Portsmouth bringing a smile to children's and adults' faces and making everybody smile and feel a bit happy inside. I mean, I've seen this. This has been on the on the sort of local news and whatnot the last couple of days. And I saw as soon as I saw this, I just thought, yes, this is everything that we need at the moment. We need silly stuff. We need fun stuff. Um, let, can we put it into some kind of context? Because you're quite used to sort of dealing with kids and whatnot because you're a nursery worker anyway. Is that right? Yeah, I am. I work for an agency going to local nurseries and special needs schools. I see. So you already do an amazing job. And, and, and what sort of, I mean, what, were you, what, what brought this on as such? Do you, and, and I'm also intrigued about the costume. Does that, is that just lying around in your house? So I've got a massive love of dinosaurs. Um, right. I've loved them for years. And so sort of recent years, people have tagged me in more and more photos of this inflatable costume. Um, so saying, well, Hannah, you this year. Well, Hannah, you really need to get one of these. Um, and so it's sort of been on my bucket list of things to do for a while. So during quarantine, sort of lockdown, sort of scrolling through Amazon and it ended up sort of on my doorstep. And, and, and yeah, went from there. And, and so you're, because obviously we're, we're allowed to go out for, for our one hour exercise and whatnot. So you're doing, so what are you doing? You're doing a walk just out down the streets and whatnot. And I assume, I, I mean, I saw a video. Kids are loving this. Yeah, they absolutely are. See, I'm putting it on. I've now got a Facebook page so people can see what roads I'm going to be walking down in the local area so they can sort of plan to make sure that the wind are at the right time to sort of come out and wave at me and everything, which is brilliant. Oh, my, you're, like a, you're like an ice cream worker. That's amazing. You, yeah. should have a little, you should have like a little chime or something like that that you wear on your, yeah. wear on your head or on your tail. My, uh, yeah, my partner's sort of saying you need to get a sort of soundtrack so people can hear you when you're at the other end of the road. <laughs> Well, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly what we need at the moment. We need we need a, a sort of to focus on our little patch, I suppose. It's important to focus on sort of the people that are sort of like immediately around us and, and, you know, in your your street and stuff like that. And I guess it just makes everyone's day a little bit, a little bit happier. Yeah, it's been brilliant just making everybody smile and just sort of forgetting what's going on for a few minutes. Well, that's what we need. We need these gentle distractions at the moment. So, listen, Hannah, you're you're fantastic for doing that, and I, I know that a load of people. I, I imagine you'll um, that, that a lot of parents will appreciate you taking the attention uh, that their kids' attention for for five minutes or whatever it is each day. I imagine they enjoy the rest. Yeah, I can imagine so. And just uh, just tell us what we're looking out for again. What's the what's the exact dinosaur that we're looking out for here? So it's a seven foot inflatable brown Tyrannosaurus Rex. Brown and it goes by the name of Hannasaurus Rex. <laughs> Good. That's perfect. That's that's all we need. But we'll be. Um, I mean, I'll certainly be looking out my out my window in case you come down. Listen, Hannah. Good to speak to you. Please keep up the good work because you're you're doing a great job of uh, of helping everyone in the community at the moment. So thank you for doing such a great job and stay safe. Brilliant. Thank you. Next up, we've got Mark who runs a barbershop in Hailing Island. Mark, you've not been able to work recently, so explain to us what you've been doing instead. Well, unfortunately, as you know, as you said, we're, we're unable to work at the moment. So uh, um, trying to entertain myself, kind of promote the business while having a little bit of fun and also keep my skills uh, going. So I decided to, to uh, first off, just do a little diary for the first day of what I was going to do and just have a bit of a joke with really, just cut the grass with a pair of scissors and uh, it sort of got a really good response so I decided to continue it and uh, try and do something different every day. I mean it's gone all right hasn't it? I saw today you were doing a you did a bowl cut for a hedge and you've yeah, been doing the yeah. grass you've been texturizing the plants um yeah what's what I mean might be a stupid question what's easier? 
A human or, or, the, or, the, or the plants? Uh, to be honest, the grass is a lot easier than humans because <laughs> the grass doesn't go anywhere. I've got... A, I've... A, and a dog was actually easier than some humans. A dog? Yeah, I did a dog in one day. Oh, my God! That must, that's, that must be terrifying. For, I mean, for both of you, for the <laughs> well, dog for and for you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, for him, I think, yeah. Oh, my word. I've got an image in my head now of uh, like what your garden must look like. It must be absolutely absolute perfection sort of slick back hedges here and there and the grass is all literally to the same level and everything is that is that uh, what we're, we're working was, on robbie. no i wish it was robbie to be fair i mean when you're cutting grass with a pair of scissors it's going <laughs> to take a few weeks what's um yeah well uh, i mean are you going to continue that uh yes yeah, so, <laughs> i do a bit of pieces every day sure uh trying to obviously uh, change uh because there's it's, it's a bit of humor involved with it as well so trying to add a little bit of uh difference to it but, well, well yeah. of course i mean it's definitely i mean i, I love it so much I, I love the account and and um i mean are you, are you thinking of venturing out a little bit here i mean I'm, I'm talking sort of maybe a few different styles i'm talking maybe coloring or something like that do you reckon you could die <laughs> any of the plants uh, well I could, if i could get hold of something maybe i would yeah <laughs> maybe dye the grass green uh, not green but uh, could do a different shade of green i guess but. yeah well i mean are you recommending this as a new gardening technique or, or are you thinking uh, probably, probably not no i mean if you're paid by the hour probably you'll be all right but sure <laughs> so explain i mean obviously it's a bit annoying at the moment because I mean, you're going to be so high in demand, Mark, when this, uh, your shop, of course, it's Hailing Bar- Barbershop, isn't it? You're going to be so high in demand when this all blows over because well, everyone, I need a haircut badly. Everyone needs a haircut really badly right now. I hope so, yeah. I mean, but I've seen some pretty bad haircuts online so far. What would you, what are you going to, re- what would you recommend to us if, uh, for example, for, for, for a male like me with, with just sort of short back and sides, do you, would you trust me to be able to do my own hair? No. No? I would Gosh. just recommend not bothering, to be fair, because no one can see it, can they? Well, no, that's true, but equally it feels horrible. Like, my hair's starting to feel oh, no. horrible, and I have to wash it every, sort of every day, you know, and everything. It's a bit grim. Yeah, I mean, would, but would you trust someone that doesn't know what they're doing? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, well, listen, Mark, will, will you keep it up and um, keep us informed with, with how it's going? We'll keep an eye on the Instagram page and, and maybe maybe when this all blows over, we can, um, I don't know, we can, we can probably take a few tips from you on that. Thanks, Robbie. You have to pop and see us. We'd love to. Listen, Mark, thanks for chatting to us. Have a good one. And yourself. Bye-bye. Fantastic to see so many people in our community keeping us entertained, keeping us... Our spirits high, it really is fantastic to see. So thank you to anyone that is doing that. Thank you to all of my guests this week as well. Henry Deacon, of course, our local sport expert. We spoke to uh, Dr. Alice Good uh, from the University of Portsmouth. And of course, at the top of the show, Councillor Steve Pitt from Portsmouth City Council. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast as well. Another one will be up after our show next Wednesday at six o'clock.